when we interact with people on social media, we're not interacting with the whole human, right? We're interacting with a small piece of that human who is often involved in some kind of ideological warfare. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. Meeting new people on the street and talking to strangers in public is no easy feat. It can be awkward, nerve-wracking, or be filled with that dreaded small talk. But we're now learning, thanks to this week's guest, that there can be immense benefits to conversing with people we don't know. Today, we're talking with Joe Cohane, a veteran journalist who has worked as an editor at Medium, Esquire, Entrepreneur, and Hemispheres. His writing has appeared in New York Magazine, the Boston Globe, the New Yorker, Wired, Boston Magazine, and the New Republic. And on July 13th, his first ever book, The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World, has been released. There's been so much buzz already from this book, and I'm excited to discuss its content and how talking to strangers can have an emotional and psychological benefit in a disconnected world. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, Brett. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm psyched to be here. Well, I mean, I'm kind of talking to a stranger. We haven't met before, right? We have not. We have not. <laughs> so this is brave of me. <laughs> I commend you. My hat's off to you. It's actually funny. I was thinking as I was starting this podcast, like, what do I have to do today? Oh, I have to do this podcast and I have to do a Zoom later on with like a hundred women. And it's always a little nerve wracking for me, even though I've done dozens of podcast interviews with total strangers, but you know, you just want to feel liked and accepted and all these things. So we're going to get into all of that, but I want to start kind of at the beginning. So you've had a really successful career in writing. And was that always what you were like? Did you aspire to be in journalism back when you were young? No, I never did. I didn't come from a family of writers. I didn't come from a family of journalists. I was a fairly normal kid. I grew up in Boston. I was big into sports and cars and things like that. I think somewhere in my teenage years, I learned how to play the bass. And then when I learned how to play the bass, I kind of fell in with like a more artsy crowd in high school. And those kids were playing music and they were making things and they were writing. And I got really into it from them. They were reading books that I had never heard of that I thought were really cool. And then, yeah, pretty much right out of college for the most part, a couple of years out of college, I started working in this business. So you've been doing journalism for so long, but now you've really found a niche in this topic of strangers and talking to strangers and the power of strangers. So what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, I mean, a little bit of it was drawn from my experience in journalism, which, as you know, because you've done a million interviews, if you listen properly, if you really talk to someone, you will unfailingly be surprised by what they tell you. So even if you're talking to a celebrity or something, you think that everything that could possibly be said about and by this person has already been said. If you really hang in there and you're actually curious and you ask a good question, you'll learn something. You'll be surprised by that person. So I carry that with me a lot, the sense that if you just hang in, people will inevitably surprise you. That was the big thing. 
you know, my background also played into it. My parents are like notorious about talking to strangers. They've done it for a million years. They'll do it in restaurants. They'll do it out in the street. They'll do it on vacation. And I observed that for a long time. So I got to see the benefits to it for them in terms of having a good time, meeting new people, making new friends. You know, they're well into their 70s and they're still making new friends, which is like a pretty good goal for being alive, I think. So those two things together form the background for the inspiration of this book. I think that's something really interesting that you just said, like your parents in your 70s, and that is creating a foundation for what it means to be alive. And I remember, I think it was Harvard that did a study of happiness, and they followed people for many decades, and they just came out with a study because they've been following them for many decades. So these people are now like well into their old age, if not have passed. And I think they said that they found that the two most important factors that contributed towards a happy life were meaningful work and depth of relationships. And I think that obviously we want people to have meaningful work. (laughs) I do a lot of work in that regard with women in particular, but the depth of relationship is so critical, right? Because so many of us just have shallow relationships and we're now more connected than ever through social media and the internet. So when you think about talking to strangers, why do you think we get so hung up with the anxiety around making that introduction, making that first step towards them? Yeah, it's complicated. So there are a number of factors that can keep us from having these interactions. They can range from like prejudice and racism, things like that, where we come to believe that someone on the other side of some kind of divide is a threat to us or they're less human or something like that. But some of the simpler explanations for it are technology and just social norms against it. So when I did this book, I became very interested in that in a way, because I was wondering why I had stopped talking to strangers. And so I kind of started examining my own life and came to the conclusion that the reason why I'd stopped was, number one, I had a phone. So I would just go into a bar and like stare at my phone, which is such a bleak thing to do. And it never made me feel good. I always felt worse, but I kept doing it anyways. And then just being very busy and very tired from having like a demanding job and a small child. So I didn't have the energy to do it. So those two things kept happening to me. And then I became conscious that I had lost this thing in my life that I kind of used to enjoy, you know, and I found enriching and fun and beneficial. So technology to start with is a big one, right? So in the past, there was more friction in day-to-day life. If you needed directions, you would talk to a stranger, right? Now, if you need directions, you look at your phone. If you needed to order a pizza, you would talk to a stranger. Now, if you need to order a pizza, you look at your phone. All these things, all these technologies have removed the necessity of interacting with other people from our lives. Now, some of these interactions could have been kind of not the most enriching thing. Maybe they were real pro forma. Maybe they were frustrating. But when you lose all those interactions, you lose the potential to engage more deeply with these people. So say you have an interaction with someone who you're asking for directions and they ask you where you're going and you say why and they have a thought about it and then you learn about them. We've eliminated an entire category of interactions because of technology, right? And it's just so much easier to look at your phone than it is to like hazard a conversation with someone you don't know at a coffee shop or a bar or on a park bench or anything like that. The other big thing is social norms. So we just live in places where it's not the norm to do this. I live in New York City. I'm surrounded by 9 million strangers and there are like fairly strict rules against talking to any of them, which is a crazy situation to be in when you think about it. So those are the things you really have to get past if you're going to start doing this. You have to be aware of the social norm and then you have to have the courage to break it and you have to put your phone down, most importantly. Yeah. And that's kind of what I meant by the social media thing. It's like we're connected to everyone, but we're also connected to no one, right? Because they're effectively fake relationships that we have on the internet. And even if we're text messaging, you know, you're not really getting that intonation and emotion and like that humanistic quality of conversation that makes you feel good inside. And it's funny that you say 
stopping to ask for directions or like just chatting with somebody on a bench or something at a park. I think of like Forrest Gump (laughs) when I think about that. But for me, I remember always finding the most conversation with strangers on an airplane. And there would always be that you would look to see who was sitting next to you and be like, oh God, are they going to talk to me? Are they going to talk to me? And naturally, I would say probably like two thirds of the people would turn to me at some point and say like, so what do you do? Or like, what are you reading? I actually met a guy named Dan Rosenswig, who's now the CEO of Chegg, one of the biggest student bookstores on the internet. And I was sitting on an airplane and we're good friends now and we hang out. So I think it's just fascinating what can happen with the power of talking to strangers. And the only reason the airplane forces me to do that is because your phone doesn't work for part of the time, right? Unless you're connected to the Wi-Fi. Right, yeah. People mention that specific situation a lot, being on a plane, right? Because I think we've all been in situations where you're just stuck with someone who's like agonizingly impervious to the social cues you're giving off that you're not in the mood to have this conversation and you don't find it interesting. You just put on your headphones like, oh, okay, I'm going to listen to my music now. Bye. Right. They, (laughs) They keep going anyways. They're lifting your headphone up. Yeah. Yeah, let me preface everything I'm about to say by stressing the necessity of social skills and being like literate of other people's emotional responses to things and their body language and all that. A lot of people I talk to who do this all the time just said that they'll try. They'll be like, oh, I've heard about that book. That seems interesting. How do you like it? And if people are responsive, like they're kind of savvy enough to understand that they're being given signals that they can go forward. And if they're not, then they're not. They just shut it down. But you just have to be super respectful and super cognizant of what effect you're having on people and what they're telling you. And that can be challenging for much of the same reason as you said about social media. You know, like when we interact with people on social media, we're not interacting with the whole human, right? We're interacting with like a small piece of that human who is often involved in some kind of ideological warfare. So it's a very small piece of that human. And it's a piece of that human that like maybe we don't really want to interact with. (laughs) When you're in the company of someone, you get a deeper sense of who they are. Not only because the conversation will probably be less like immediately hostile than a conversation on Twitter, because like when you're sitting with someone, you can't insult them. They'll hit you or you'll see that they're upset or there'll be a consequence to it, which there isn't in Twitter. But you'll see their facial expressions. You'll see their body language. You'll hear what they call paralinguistic cues, which is you hear the rise and fall of their voice, their intonation. All these things humanize others for us. There's been a lot of research on this, actually, how we feel that people we talk to in person are actually more human than people who we just read the thoughts of online or something like that. Because it's undeniable. When you're sitting there talking to someone, you can't deny the fact that this is a thinking, feeling human being. Mm -hmm. Whereas the internet gives you the luxury of denying that. If you use the internet well, it can be super beneficial. You can gain access to all different vantage points and different people that you would never run into. It can be really, really good. It can be a really enriching thing. But I think the way we use it generally is probably not the best way. What about like video chat and Zoom? Is that an equal swap for talking to strangers? Yeah, that's so new. Probably not quite as good. It's a little lo-fi. Like there's one interesting term that people use for online interactions and that they're low fidelity. So like Twitter is super low fidelity because you're just getting a very simple signal, right? Slightly higher fidelity would be Zoom where you're seeing a person's face, you're seeing their body language, like you're hearing their voice and those things. That helps. There's been some research on that in like the last couple of years that shows that people do attribute more humanity to people that they're talking to on Zoom, but not as much as if you were talking to them in person. Hmm. And it's so new that we communicate like this all the time that like researchers just haven't caught up to it yet. That's true, I guess. Like we've got a year of data that everyone's sorting through right now, probably. What about generationally? You know, I can imagine that the boomers are much more akin to striking up a conversation with the cashier than the 15-year-old 
Gen Z kid who's just been staring at their phone their whole life. And actually, prior to COVID, we had a retail store for Britain Co. that <laughs> we hired retail assistants, some of which were older people. Okay, I mean like 40s, 50s, that's not old. Others that were like literally 16. And I had to tell these girls, these 16-year-olds, like when someone walks into the store, look them in the eyes with eye contact and say, welcome. Can I help you out with anything today? And like give them a big smile. And instead they're looking down, looking at the floor, just like so awkward and uncomfortable. And I'm like, what have we done to this generation? So is that all just technology or have we failed as parents of these kids to help teach them the ways? Yeah, I'm definitely trying to avoid becoming one of those people who's just like stupid young people. Why aren't they as good as us? I think it's a mix of things. I think number one is just the age, right? So older people tend to be more socially free than younger people generally. And I think that was probably the case when I was young. I think it's the case now. They're less embarrassed about hazarding this sort of contact. They're more comfortable with themselves, all that stuff that just make it a little easier to talk to new people. You're sure of yourself, you know? Um, but technology has definitely eroded that generation's social skills. Like uh, a really interesting thing I kept finding when I was digging through like data and survey data from a lot of these psychology studies is again and again and again and again, you would hear college students who participated in studies that had them talk to strangers saying that they were terrified by the prospect. It was so overwhelming, the idea of like going up to someone and just having a conversation. They didn't feel that they had the tools. They thought they would be rejected. They thought people would hate them, all this stuff. Number one, they found it a lot easier than they thought they would. But more importantly, you keep seeing this in the data. They would say things like, I feel like I have faith in humanity again. I feel like I learned how to have a conversation again. You know, they're very adept at digital conversation, which is very valuable. Obviously, this is the way a big chunk of the world runs. But what you lose with digital communication is that kind of improvisation. You know, when you're talking to a stranger, it's like an active improv. It works on so many different levels. It's challenging. You have to pay attention. You have to be alert. You have to do things like make eye contact. When you don't do that for a long time, and we don't do it for the better part of your life, you know, those skills are there, but they're just kind of dormant. Those muscles kind of a trophy. So good for you for pushing them to do that. This is innate to humans. We are very good communicators generally. We're very good at cooperating with strangers and talk to strangers. Like in the natural world, we're a total freak that the species behaves in this way. But you have to work those muscles. You have to get better at it. Well, you never will. You'll be paralyzed at the thought of making eye contact with someone and that'll be it. That'll be the way you live. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I was going to ask you, like, how do we start? What are the best ways to ease into this? You know, we're coming out of COVID. We really haven't talked to strangers in a long time. Some of us are just naturally introverted or like me, I'm an extroverted introvert. So 
I'm actually introverted, even though I push it and fake it. Or maybe there are the 16 year olds out there, you know, who are stuck in their phones. What do we do? How do we practice building these muscles? The most important thing to know out of the gate is that everybody feels anxious about this. And that's certainly COVID. We've all been in the hole for like a year and a half, and that's not benefited our social skills in any way. But even before that, there's a lot of research on how anxious people were at the prospect of doing this. They were afraid they were going to get rejected. They were afraid the conversation was going to be stilted and terrible, and they wouldn't know what to say, and the people would think that they were boring. So it's been very much a constant for as long as they've studied this, which is 15 years or so. People have always been very anxious. So you take that baseline anxiety, which is already pretty high, and you add to it a literal plague, and you have a recipe for like tremendous social anxiety. And you read a lot of stories about this. A lot of people are feeling that way. Start simple. The best way to do it is put your phone down, right? It can't work if you have your phone. It can't work if you have headphones on. Just put them down. When you walk to wherever you're walking to, just notice things. Just look at people. Just look at stores. Just notice the environment that you're in and follow your curiosity. Is there something interesting here? Is there something that you're kind of wondering about? Do that for a little while until you start getting more comfortable. Start making eye contact with people and saying hi and smiling and holding eye contact, you know, not for like 45 minutes, but for like a few seconds to establish some sort of connection. That can be really challenging for people too, especially younger people. I mean, it was even challenging for me to do it on the regular. And just build yourself up from there. So once you make eye contact and you maybe smile and someone smiles back, then you can ask them how their day is going. Start with small talk. We all hate small talk, but I think it's largely because we don't understand it. It's not the whole conversation. It's like the entry point to a better conversation. You have to learn how to like use it well, but then you can just build your way up from there. But I can't stress it enough. Just like start small. Don't get too ambitious out of the gate because if you just try to like stop somebody cold in the street and ask them about their dreams, it's going to get weird. It's going to be weird for both of you. <laughs> yes. However, I'm going to get to the, like, how do you have deep conversations in a minute? But I think what you're saying is really interesting. I've been in New York City where you live quite a bit. And you're walking down these giant avenues with thousands of people around you. And typically, I've noticed this about myself. My eyes go to the ground. I don't want people to think that I'm like checking them out, <laughs> like looking at them a funny way. You know, RBF, resting bitch face. Like I look like I'm actually upset, but I'm happy. So one of the things I try to do is, to your point, just looking at people with like a soft smile. And it's fascinating even just like as a psychological experiment of like, what's going on in their day? What emotion can I read from these people? I have to drop the guard of feeling self-conscious that they think I'm doing something weird. And it becomes more of an experiment where I'm like, oh, I bet that guy looks really angry and stressed out. And oh, that family over there is super sweet. And just like noticing the people around you is step one. <laughs> I really believe that. Let me ask you this. That's a great point. How does it make you feel when you do that? Do you notice like a change? Yeah, I just feel like so many emotions. It feels like there's this energy around me versus me in my bubble, like trying to just put my head down and get to my next location. Yeah, that's great. There's a psychologist named Jillian Sandstrom. She's done some of the best work on this stuff. And she did an experiment where she did like a scavenger hunt where people had to look for like a certain type of person and then talk to them and then log their experiences. But one amazing thing she found is that the control group there was one group that went out and talked to people. And then there was one group that was asked just to find the people on the scavenger hunt list. Find someone wearing like a loud tie. Find someone who's on roller skates or something. Just find them and look at them. And she found that even just looking at people, noticing people, 
makes people feel a little happier. They feel like an enhanced sense of well-being, connectedness, belonging, like all the stuff that we attribute to conversations with strangers. They get a little bit of that just from paying attention to other people. Mm. So when I say like a big part of this is just noticing other people, you'll probably feel pretty good when you contemplate that these are humans and not just like obstacles that need to be maneuvered around so you can get to your meeting. You know, it's just like me to a T. Like I've always thought that way, that these are like ox. I have yeah. to like get around these ox to get to the F train. Yeah, because I usually walk faster than people too. So I'm like maneuvering around them, <laughs> the stroller and whatever. Yeah, totally, totally. I'm always the fastest walker on the street. <laughs> so noticing is super important for sure, for sure. People are starting to study it. Yeah, I think as you're saying that, what's coming up for me is my parents would just be like, I think a lot of little kids hear this, like, stop staring at people. Little kids can't help but look at faces. And I notice this with my kids now and they're just like, everyone looks so different, right? And yeah, sometimes they'll point out like, she's got a red dot on her nose. And you're like, no, stop. But like, they're just being human. They're just trying to like see faces and have that connectivity, right? So like we're trained almost from a young age to not do this, which is crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And that curiosity is so important too. Like it's something that has to be cultivated. Yeah. If you're going to live as like a social creature, you have to exercise that curiosity about other people. So a couple of years ago, I did a social experiment for myself called Give It a Week. So at the beginning of the year, instead of picking one big New Year's resolution, I chose 52. And I tried to pick things that I either really wanted to learn or that were going to be like probably a big challenge for me that I've always wanted to try, but never focused on. I did things like all kinds of diet and fitness experiments, a lot of creative learning, guitar, singing, painting, et cetera. I became a Lyft driver for a week. I dyed my hair blonde. But one of the things I did was I did meet a new stranger every day for a week and go have a real conversation with them. And I had to document all of this on Instagram. It's still on my Instagram highlights. If you go to at Brit on Instagram, you can see them all. So strangers is one of them. And not only did I have to like nod at them and say, I had to walk up to them and out of nowhere on the street and just strike up a conversation. And it's just so much easier said than done. (laughs) But I learned so many interesting things. I got so many cool stories. I would sort of like pick who my person was. I would eye the crowd. (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to go to that person. Even the Starbucks barista, instead of just ordering my coffee, I sat there and I said, so how'd you get into making coffee? Or like, how long have you been working at Starbucks? What do you do when you're not working at Starbucks? Like I just started interviewing this guy. And turns out he was a break dancer who, when he takes breaks at Starbucks, he goes out into the street in San Francisco and his beatboxing friend comes up and he does this breakdance routine twice a day. And I was like, no way. And his name's Eric. And so I went and found Eric the next day and I came for his breakdance routine and it was amazing. And I was high-fiving him. And I was like, I would have never known that this dude that I order coffee from is also an epic breakdancer. And it was that, it was like this woman who had like five kids with her. I just gave her flowers one day and was like, you're doing great, mom. It just felt so nice. So my point is, I think you're onto something here, but tell me more about like the social and psychological benefits to meeting strangers. I love that you did that. That's so cool. It's really interesting that you mentioned Starbucks because one of the first major studies that was done on this stuff was done by these two psychologists named Elizabeth Dunn and Jillian Sandstrom. And what they wanted to do is see if there was any benefit to people just chatting with their barista, like their Starbucks barista in the morning. So they sent half of the people out to just not talk to them and do what they always do. And then they sent the other half to like just chat with the barista. It could be small talk. It could be what you did, which is getting to something a little more personal, or it could just be like, how's the day going? But they found that the people who did it, the people who engaged with their barista, and these are not long conversations, they found that they felt happier. They felt an enhanced sense of well-being. 
They felt more connected to where they live. They felt a stronger sense of belonging. And over the last few years, these sorts of experiments have been repeated again and again and again. And the findings are remarkably consistent. People find those effects a lot, but they also find that people feel more trusting after they have a positive interaction with a stranger, which makes sense because you're reassured about at least one of these people is not out to get me. If you have a specially pessimistic reading of human nature, that's really valuable. People feel more trusting, more optimistic about the species, basically. They feel more confident in their ability to connect with people they don't know, which is really valuable for like a hypersocial species like us. And done the right way, these sorts of interactions can also alleviate things like prejudice, ideological entrenchment, all these things that are kind of the bugbears of the age, and also reduce loneliness, which is like a major public health problem right now. Rates of loneliness in the West are through the roof, and no one knows how to deal with it. It turns out that these sorts of interactions practiced on a fairly regular basis will make you feel less lonely. It addresses what seems to be a pretty intractable public health problem. Mm, it's interesting. Yeah. And loneliness is a public health problem because it's a mental health problem. And the mental health crisis is worse than ever before. It's the pandemic. We really haven't talked about this last year, but it's actually kind of ironic that you probably out there, you out there, listener, have so much anxiety, maybe in general in your life, but also, of course, talking to a stranger. But then once what Joe's saying happens when this works and you feel connected, it relieves that anxiety. So it's really counterintuitive to want to engage so much like this. But I have a question for you, Joe. So what happens if you flat out get rejected? <laughs> like you're like, hey, like, how's it going, barista? How's your day been? Like, what do you like to do when you're not working? <laughs> right. Then what happens? They just give you like the stink eye and you're like, oh God, what do I do now? Right. It's complicated. I mean, one thing that I'll say from the outset is another one of the bigger studies that have been done by Juliana Schroeder and Nicholas Epley, who at that point were together at the University of Chicago, found that everybody's worried about rejection. Rejection is like one of the biggest fears people have, and other researchers have found this as well. All these studies show that the fear of rejection is like largely baseless. In the Epley and Schroeder studies, which were done on literally at mass transit, which you're never supposed to talk to people on mass transit, in Chicago and London, London being especially a place that you don't talk to people on the subway, no one was rejected. Not a single person was rejected out of hundreds of people that they sent out to do this. These are not experts. These are just commuters, right? They don't have any training in this. So the threat of rejection is going to be a lot lower than you might think. Now, some people perceive rejection where there is no rejection. So you might start talking to the barista and he might be so unaccustomed to people talking to him that he doesn't hear you or it doesn't register with him, right? I mean, I've certainly experienced that a bunch of times where they're just kind of confused because why are you treating me like a human being? No one treats me like a human being. So in those instances when they just seem to be kind of unclear about what you're doing here, you can just repeat what you said. And then they'll be like, oh, okay, this person is breaking a social norm. Like they're asking me a question. I'll answer a question. If people get frightened or something, then you've done something very wrong. So it depends on the individual what that kind of reaction is. But if someone seems afraid, you just go away. Just don't do it. But by and large, and I found this myself, the risk is pretty low that someone will just reject you outright. What if they think you're like hitting on them, like cross-gender talking to strangers where you're like, hey, Eric Barista, how's your day going? What do you like to do when you're not making coffee? <laughs> like I totally wasn't hitting on him, but he might have thought I was. I don't know. Right. Yeah, it's complicated. One thing you can do is just avoid places where people generally hit on each other. So <laughs> bars. when people are practicing, when they're starting out here, like don't do it in bars. Yeah. I mean, I love talking to people in bars, but I've also become good enough that I can transmit that my aims here are not carnal aims. I'm genuinely curious. Doing it out in public where there are people around helps a little bit. And I do think the situation is going to be different for women than it is for me. And I've recognized that fully. I can't generalize my experience because I'm not getting whistled at walking down the street. 
at least not often. <laughs> so yeah, you have to leave it to the individual to kind of adjust their sort of threat radar and their level of comfort and things like that. And if you're uncomfortable about having an interaction across that kind of line, or you believe that the people are going to misinterpret what you're doing, talk to someone who's kind of more like you to start out just to work those muscles, right? To get better at it. So maybe that might be more comfortable. That might eliminate at least the possibility that you'll be suspected or they might feel uncomfortable or things like that. And I do think in time, you get pretty good at just transmitting that you're not hitting on a person. <laughs> or do it like as a group. You know, my husband and I are both fairly chatty with waiters. We talked to a waiter recently who was an immigrant to California and it was what was the story? Like, how did you get here? Like, where'd you grow up? He's like, oh, I grew up in Guatemala. So it feels like more disarming because we're together. Yeah. Group to group or group to individual maybe feels mm -hmm. a little bit safer. So if you guys out there are listening, maybe start that way <laughs> if you need a leg in the door. That's a fantastic idea. Yeah, it's a fantastic insight. I mean, my wife and I will do that too. The one-to-one -one interaction can feel kind of intense, right? It's just yeah. like you and me and we're locked into this thing and you can't look at anybody else. Like we're in a tunnel together. Yeah. And, you know, often that can be super pleasant. Those interactions can be wonderful and they often are. But yeah, it's easier to do it with two people because they can kind of split their attention. If it's like a man and a woman, then you feel a little more comfortable that there's not something untoward happening here. For sure. That's a great insight. What about the dreaded cocktail party where you're like, okay, you got into a conversation, it is one-on-one, -on -one, and you're like, oh my God, I'm never going to get out of this. What's the proper way to end the conversation and move on? I was at an event one time with someone, I won't say her name, very, very, very powerful, notable. And she just looked at me and she was like, it's really great to see a Brit. And then she just walked away. And I was like, yeah, okay, I guess our conversation's done. <laughs> <laughs> did you feel wounded or insulted by that when she did it? How did you feel? Kind of. Yeah. That's pretty abrupt. I felt like she was very practiced at it. Like she does this a lot. Like she goes, she's a very, very, very notable person. And I could tell she was looking at me straight in the eyes, but then I could see her like sort of dart her eyes sideways really fast. And then she was smiling, focusing on me. We probably spent five minutes chatting and she goes, really good to see you, Britt. And just walked away. Yeah, yeah. Is that proper protocol? I don't know. Real merciless networker. Yeah, that's not the best, as evidenced by the fact that you didn't feel great about it. Right. People definitely have a lot of anxiety about ending these conversations. Generally, just be honest. I mean, you can just say, look, look, it's been really great talking to you. I need to mingle a little bit before I take off. Or you have to go get a drink and you can offer to get them a drink too. And they'll usually say no. And then you can go, you know, they're like, there are ways out. Getting a drink is usually my way out. I'm like, oh, I'm going to run to the restroom yeah. or I got to go get another drink. Right. <laughs> I'm drinking a lot that night. People know what you're up to when you do that, but they still yeah. feel like comforted by the fact that you made the effort to not be like super abrupt with them. Yeah. But cocktail parties are really interesting because they are social. There's a generally a finite number of people there. We can be reassured that we're connected to them in some way, even if it's just like four degrees of separation or something. But the cocktail party always comes up because people just get mired in these like ghastly small talk conversations, right? So bad. The person's not really reading your signals and you're bored and it goes on forever and then you've wasted like an hour. And this is what I said earlier about small talk is that we misunderstand small talk as the conversation right? Small talk is not the conversation. We tend to assume that when a person is being boring, it's because that person is boring, mm -hmm. right? It's like, this is the best this person could do is like this endless soliloquy about like the dog or whatever. The problem is like, you can take control of that conversation. And the first thing you have to do is understand that it's the doorway. So there's a social anthropologist named Kate Fox in England who studied how the Brits 
talk about weather all the time, right? Everybody always makes fun of the Brits for talking about weather all the time. And they think it's evidence that they don't have anything else to say. But what Fox found is that the weather talk is just a bonding ritual. So it's not even a conversation. There's no content in this conversation. What it does is it registers that we can be in the presence of each other and not be erratic or weird or threatening or dangerous or crazy. It shows that you recognize that you're both experiencing some commonality. It could be like rain or wind or sun or whatever it is. It's a way of making you both comfortable in each other's presence. And so that's the function of small talk. That's how it works. If you get stuck in it forever, it makes people miserable. Like there's a lot of research on this. The road to an unhappy life is just a life of small talk. It's like hell, right? Totally. I've been in these conversations where I'm like, oh my God, I remember being pregnant because yeah. it's like the obvious thing to talk about when you're pregnant. Oh, like how far along are you? Is it a boy or a girl? Blah, 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 blah. And I just wanted to be like, so what was your biggest obstacle you faced when you were young? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just wanted to like go to real conversation, but you know, I don't know how to gradually get there if I just need to throw myself off the edge. I think you can do it. I think you can just throw yourself off the edge. I mean, I collected a lot of these tips in the book, but one good example is there's a guy named Paul Ford. Do you know Paul Ford? He's like a tech CEO. He was a writer. He's really smart. He's really talented. Yeah. But Paul used to do this thing at parties where he's pretty introverted, but he knew he had to talk to people at parties, but he needed to find a way to do it without getting mired in bad conversations, without being awkward. And so his idea was he would ask people what they did, which is everybody's first question. And then whatever they told him, he would say, wow, that sounds really hard. Oh. And then that would be it. They would be gone. They would be going. That's a good tip. And when people tell you about something that's hard, you can get a sense of who they are. Yeah. And then there might be something you can kind of ask questions about you might be interested in. And you can help them draw that out and explain it. And they're happy because like no one ever pays attention to them and no one cares that their job is hard. And all of a sudden this person is like, oh, that sounds really difficult. Like, tell me about it. And I know journalists who do that too. And people get comfortable very quickly and they tell you their story. So it's really valuable. Yeah, they feel seen, right? They just feel like, yeah, like, oh, you see me. Yeah, yeah. And no one ever feels seen. Right. Right. You know, let's be honest. Like no one ever really cares that you're having a hard time at work. Right. Like they might ask you, but they don't really care. But if you're engaging in that conversation and your aim is to like learn about this person, that's a really good way in. The way you do work is the way you live your life, oftentimes. Okay. Another good thing is to say, instead of what you do, this is a tip that came from Georgie Nightingale, who's like a communications genius in England, who teaches a lot of classes and stuff, develops curricula. And she would say, instead of saying, what do you do? She would say, what would you like to do more of? Or what would you like to do less of? Oh. And so when you do that, you've just changed the nature of the conversation immediately. Like you might've started with small talk, but now you're like, oh, okay. Like this is something that's happening now. And the, what would you like to do more of question is a great question because then it cuts right to the person's passions, their hopes, what they think life is, what it should be, their family, all this really good stuff that gets you there very quickly. And it's a little abrupt but people kind of admire the audacity of it. Yeah. To your question that you thought about that you wanted to say, like people would be like, oh, all right, okay, game on. Like this is much more interesting than me just being like, so tell me about your pregnancy because that's what I see here, you know? Right. Unless someone's like genuinely engaged in that because that's obviously a very interesting topic too. But that sort of stuff, like taking what should be a scripted exchange and just flipping it a little bit works really well. Yeah. Then you all of a sudden you're getting a taste of the person. You're learning something. I don't like the, what do you do question? Because especially for women, some women don't have a formal job. Their job is to be a mom or their job is to like run the household. So it feels belittling, right? Yeah. I usually say like, how do you spend your time? But I like this idea of what do you want to do more of or less of? Because I think it really gives people the freedom to dream a bit bigger yeah. for their life and their intention. Yeah, yeah. Where should we go 
to find these common people? Is it just anywhere? We should just be walking on the street in the coffee shop. Should we be going to more cocktail parties? What if we're feeling a lot of social anxiety coming out of COVID? What's the best way to re-emerge into the world? Yeah. Again, to my earlier point, don't expect to be great at it right away. We definitely need to get better. We need to practice. We need to do a little training. A great place to do it is just in like a service context. So you're at a restaurant, you're talking to the waiter, you're at a bar, you're talking to the bartender, you're in a coffee shop, you're talking to the barista, provided you're not like getting in the way and like hanging on their arm as they're trying to serve somebody else. Like, you know, again, develop social skills, watch, notice the effect you're having on them. But those sorts of contexts are really useful because both of you know like what your roles are. Right. And so you're not going to be super suspicious of the waiter. You're not going to worry about the waiter necessarily. Mm -hmm. So that eliminates some of the anxiety. And also the dynamic is established. Right. And you also know that you're not going to end up talking to this person for three hours because they have other stuff to do. So talking to bartenders, talking to waiters, things like that are really good practice. And it's also really valuable because, like you said, a lot of them do other stuff. They're waiting tables, they're tending bar because they're trying to raise money to do something, or maybe they're artists, or maybe they're trying to start a business. They tend to be super interesting. Like, a lot of them are really interesting people. Mm -hmm. And when you get in there, you're like, this was an interesting conversation. This person's interesting. This person maybe caused me to think about the world in a different way. Mm -hmm. But there's also a real benefit to, like, recognizing the fact that the people who, like, literally grow, or people who literally deliver your food are human beings. Yes. Especially now when, like, everything is no contact. It's super important to be, I guess, like a good member of society. You need to understand that all those people you rely on to stay alive are fully human beings, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a robot on a bicycle. Like, mm -hmm. this is very important. Not yet, Joe. I know. Yeah, it will be. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be a drone in like the next five years. I'll be following the drone around asking it questions about its life. Yeah. But it's just super important to be like a moral person, to be a good member of society. You got to understand this is a really important lesson and it's being lost because we just don't have a lot of contact with the people that we're dependent on. My funny story that I'll end with is in that same year that I did all those challenges for Give It a Week, I was a Lyft driver for a week because I wanted to understand what it was like on the opposite side to be in that service role and to see if people would talk to me. And it happened to be during December. So I like tricked out my car with... Christmas everything. Elf was on the screen. I was giving out candy canes. I was dressed up like an elf. There was a cookie decorating bar and a photo station and a disco ball. Like this lift was the coolest lift ever. And yet people would get in. I remember this guy, John. John was on the way to a big important meeting. He was like in a suit and very serious. And I'm like giving him a candy cane and playing Christmas carols. And it was like stone cold John. And I was just like, dude, what? You can't talk to me? Meanwhile, other people would get in and we'd have like a karaoke party on the way to their job. And it's very, very interesting to be on the flip side of that. And it was very welcomed to have that interaction as the driver. And guess what? I got the most tips from the people mm -hmm. that were like engaging with me too. So yeah, yeah. I think to your point, it proves the psychological effect of feeling happier and more connected. Absolutely. So yes, all those service providers, thank you for doing what you do. And if you are a person that's receiving that service, chat with your service provider. Okay, so Joe, we like to leave our listeners with a little project or assignment every week. Teach me something new, you know. So what would you recommend our listeners try this week? I feel like I know what you're going to say, but maybe you could be more specific about it. Right. Talk to a stranger. Right, exactly. Find out one thing you didn't know about five people this week, five strangers. So whatever it is, it could be a person at Starbucks, it could be someone on the bus. Just find out one thing about five people and ask yourself how it feels at the end of the week. I love that. I think that's perfect. 
Thank you so much for coming on. And I know you have an incredible book coming out. So where can everyone go to find that? Will you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Yeah. The book will be out on July 13th. It's called The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. You can get it anywhere. It'll be in all major bookstores. I sold it in a lot of countries. So even if you don't live in the US, there's a good chance that you'll be able to get it wherever you live. And yeah, the book, it looks at what keeps us from talking to strangers. It looks at what happens when we do talk to strangers, but it also gets into the history of strangers. We didn't talk about this so much, but all the times in the past when there was a crisis and humans responded to the crisis by finding ways to communicate and cooperate with strangers, all these little social renaissances from like hunter-gatherer times to the creation of hospitality to the rise of cities, all this stuff. I dug into all those too because I wanted to gain insight into how they pulled it off because we have troubled times of our own that we need to address. And I was wondering if those lessons were going to be applicable to contemporary times. And I think they are. I love that. And it's also fascinating to think about culturally how talking to strangers might be different in like Asia versus Europe versus the US and so on. And Latin America, where everyone's just like hugging all the time and like coming to my house. So yeah, read the book. Thank you, Joe, for being here. And for everyone out there, that is our show today. If you enjoyed it, leave us a virtual high five by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. And until then, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Britt.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Britt or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Allie Ives and Allie Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson. 